Hello and welcome to the Sailor Podcast. Today I'm in the lovely seaside town of Port Elliot in South Australia, which is kind of the heel of the boot if you think of the Flurio Peninsula as a boot and Kangaroo Island as a football. It's a lovely balmy day. You might be able to hear the Corellas screeching in the background. I promise they're okay. That's just the noise that they make. <laughs> While I'm enjoying the, the flora and fauna, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands and waters, the Ramanjeri and Naranjeri people and any other nations with a connection to this area and acknowledge the elders past, present and future. Now, I'm, I'm in a... It's, it's not little by any stretch. I'm in a studio which is covered wall-to-wall, even from the ceiling, with artworks. I'm here with the lovely Krista Rosa. Hi. Chris, hello. Yeah, hi. <laughs> Thank you for uh, welcoming me in here. I feel like I'm being privy to way too much. <laughs> so much happening in here. Um, it's quite... It's busy. It is busy, but mm. in a nice way. And it's it's actually doing wonders for the acoustics for this recording. So thank you twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was it was managed that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thoughtful. <laughs> um, before we take a deep dive, can you just give our, a couple of sentences or a bit of a brief? You know, how would you describe your practice to someone that hasn't? encountered it a deep dive's a good a a good intro into it because I kind of deep dive most days into the ocean and that kind of feeds this practice um that was appropriate to start it was but I think you've used it before I think I've heard it once or twice before but this time it's super appropriate um I um make a kind of it's kind of a multidisciplinary practice that's kind of you know Mm. A go-to word, yeah, yeah, not to tie anything down. Okay. Um, but I, I'm kind of at the core of it is is a printmaking practice. Yeah. Um, and even though I don't feel that I'm a a traditional, I don't know if that's quite the word, but uh, a traditional printmaker, I really rely on the process of printmaking mm. to inform my practice. So that's what I initially studied. Mm. And it's kind of at the core of everything. Um, but I do um, printmaking in the expanded field. Yeah, that's, cool. that's, you know, that's, that's, you know. Love it. Um, but um, most recently kind of major installations, sculpture, um, video and music. There you go. I think I've hit them all. Yeah, no, yeah. music not quite, but, you know, in collaboration. But yeah, I can yeah. just about chuck it all in. Right, many hats. Yeah. No, not really. Just one <laughs> large sun hat, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Very appropriate idea. Well, that's touching on our what my next question was going to be, which was how did you find your way to being an artist? So was there formal training in there? There's formal training there, but serendipitously because um, at school I wanted to be an art teacher. Mm. I liked art and biology Mm. and I was absolutely, am I allowed to swear, fucking hopeless at school. (laughs) Uh, Easily distracted I think was a common description. Oh, yes. Um, But I thought I'd be an art teacher and I didn't, you know, I just mucked around way too much and was hopeless. And my dad's an Italian migrant, very low education, and my mum was a nurse aide and they were like, like being an artist was not a discussion in our family. Not on the table. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. No. It was. You get a job and you save up and you buy a house. Okay. So I uh, became a nurse, yeah. and I nursed for I, I can't remember the exact amount of years, but quite a long time. And I was quite ambitious and driven. Yeah. And part of my nursing uh, work, I went uh, to 
Flinders Uni. I don't think it was quite. It was. I think it was. It wasn't called Flinders Uni. It was a what would become Flinders an Flinders annex. Uni? A yeah. be, I think. Forget what the Sturt College. That was oh, it. Yeah. Uh, so I did a post kind of grad studies in nursing. Yeah. And uh, part of that, I did an elective in printmaking, of, w- of which my line manager was horrified that I was getting time off work to go and study printmaking. But I suddenly, I, I had been slowly realising that nursing wasn't for me, okay. that I was kind of the round square peg going in the wrong hole. Yeah. Um, so printmaking consumed me and I would be there printing really late at night, breathing in way too many terps fumes. <laughs> But the lecturer was Nigel Murray Harvey and he really encouraged me to pursue printmaking, which is kind of weird because I was kind of like an aspiring rising up the nursing hierarchy yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Um, so I decided, yeah, this is this is right. And um, I left nursing and uh, applied to go to Stanley Street School of Art. And it was, it was at the cusp where there was all this talk where um, – Higher education was about to become um, – you had to pay. So yeah. it, was about to, it was about to change. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, I've got to get in before, it, um, before I have to pay. Yeah, that's motivating. <laughs> that was motivating. And also I took some – like I really did use that printmaking department at, at Flinders to the max and I got some works framed by – was it Anima Gallery? And I remember the guy, Robert – now I can't remember his last name. We'll, we'll throw he, he kind of He kind of said the same thing. Oh, well, you know, you should pursue this. So yeah. it was kind of those early encouraging words that pushed me. Mind you, I kind of feel that I'd been always really interested in – in making things I used to like draw and make cards and do kind of weird Mm. home crafty things but I was always uh filling my room a bit like this studio with hyper colored images you know Toulouse-Lautrec incredible lithographs and I was obsessed with the phobes so nothing in a way has kind of changed because I'm still really interested and fascinated with that use of color and the and the way color can be explored and contrasted so, yeah, so then I went to art school. Love it. The journey. Is that the question? Is that yeah, the full yeah. question? I'm just soaking it in. Okay. <laughs> I could elaborate more, though, on what happened at if Stanley Street. To. Well, yeah. because, I, because a part of my Year 12 art project was to – I went and interviewed a jeweller at the Jam Factory, and that was really exciting oh, for me as well. Cool. So I kind of had this little niggly thing at the back of my brain about being a jeweller. Yeah. So I thought when I went to North Adelaide, oh, that was my main focus, jewellery making, and I did printmaking on the side. Well, jewellery making obviously didn't work out <laughs> because I just lost a lot of hair by pulling it out with frustration. And I kind of – in a way, I went to a different form of metalwork because it was zinc etching plates, oh, and yeah. so I kind of became. And harking back to that screen printing session, late night sessions at mm. Flinders, so I kind of majored in printmaking. But the art school was quite um, skill based, yep. you know, and it was a lot about acquiring those printmaking skills and not acquiring the jewelry skills. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Oh, but I was also going to say. Now I'm thinking more that I was a I was obviously a mature aid student. Okay. Yeah. So I and by the time I went to art school, I already had bought the house that my parents decided I needed to buy. As <laughs> being a good Italian house. girl, yeah. I I, I satisfied girl. them, and then it was kind of now it's time to you know fulfil my yeah. yeah. They couldn't hold that over you then. No, nah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it all. You can yeah. have it all. Yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. I don't know if you can. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. <laughs> no jewellery. Um, I don't know how to phrase this question, but was there a 
point of going from 2D to 3D that's any significant or is that not really, is it just, can you just tell me more about the materials? Because <laughs> I don't yeah. know if we've scratched. Yeah. This just seems like there's a lot. <laughs> well, obviously printmaking involves paper and paper is the thing I love because paper, you know, is just so varied. It can, you know, from high-end, incredibly handmade, traditional Italian papers with huge weight and and malleability to, you know, so I use incredible papers, handcrafted papers like that, mm. right down to newspaper and tissue paper. So I just love that the qualities of paper, that, that it's so strong, flexible, opaque, transparent. Um, you know, it can be made into sculptural forms. I spend a lot of time perforating paper. So paper is like, is a, is the most important material to me, but in recent more recent times, and perhaps um, since meeting my husband, who's a potter, um, I don't know if I should claim that he's had that much influence over me. No, he has. How but, much credit do you give him? Yeah. No, that's how much credit do I give? Yeah, but because he's using three dimensional objects, making three dimensional objects all yeah. the time, I did kind of want to cash in on that level of expertise and have have played with some earthenware and developed three-dimensional things starting with with paper clay and earthenware Mm. and since then I kind of dally Um, quite often too I wanted to get away from that idea of just uh, print print on paper Mm. and wanted to add three-dimensional two-dimensional forms to the paper to kind of make the paper you know have that sculptural element and then as I started to almost hint at before the 3d stuff maybe that happened the paper mache kind of stuff maybe happened because of COVID because because you know you I had a lot of time in the studio and I listened to a couple of the other podcasts and many people have spoken about you know the the advantages of COVID um, because you you spent heaps more time in the studio so I wanted to use all the shit that's in this room which is a really huge room there is some in here there's a lot of stuff (laughs) and I wanted to just use what I had yeah so the that kind of changed my approach to materials and I really wanted to use the you know millions of rotten prints that have gone wrong (laughs) and I just wanted to use easily accessible stuff so I started to make small paper mache objects I had used uh, PU foam quite a lot in the past but I kind of was beating myself because it's you know a pretty horrible plastic thing Um, so I wanted to go from the PU foam to to using uh, paper mache so uh, and another that's another reason for loving paper paper because the paper mache is so strong and so uh, malleable and, you know, you can do almost whatever you like with it. So that's how I kind of started making small paper mache forms which have evolved into kind of giant paper mache forms. Yeah, it's hard to even comprehend how, <laughs> you know, you think of paper mache and I think a lot of people think of a certain scale, but yeah. we're beyond that. <laughs> oh, no, this, the big ones aren't even in here. Yeah. The big ones are in the – I cleaned out the shed to put – to make a carport and now I've had to fill it with giant paper mache forms that maybe should just be burnt. I'm not sure. I'm not sure say that on this podcast. Yeah, no, you can say that. What do you do with all the stuff you yeah, make? Yeah, look, it's a it's, it's a question. It's part of the the whole practice. Isn't it is. It? What do you yeah. do? What do you <laughs> do with all that stuff? Yeah. yeah.
and maybe uh, I don't know that nicer sustainability <laughs> might tie into this next question that I have about the themes in your work um, and whether you find that everything that you make comes back to some core recurring themes or if you find that you have a permission to sort of go in different directions with different projects. It's both. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I think you have one idea and it just has little offshoots and branches and, you know, pathways that travel s- slightly differently. But since moving to the South Coast maybe over 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, my practice really shifted because um, I had come from a house that I'd bought that had like a botanic garden in it and that was that was what kind of informed my practice. And then when I came to this place... It was a denuded gravel landscape, so I the the, the shoreline became my uh, my food. Yeah. Uh, so I was really interested in the things that I would find washed up on the beach, and they were kind of brown, discarded things that most people wanted cleared off the beach. Yeah. You know, they were kind of ugly and interfered in the picnic hamper kind of notions. <laughs> Do you mean like natural things? Or? I mean natural things. Yeah, okay. The, it's funny. When I think back, I don't think I remember so many natural things, but there are obviously there's a shit ton now. Um, so, yeah, so the the move did change what I was looking at. So I became interested in the, the sea forms and I wanted to know more about them. I thought they were flora and I thought, oh, that, that aligns with my practice mm like my city practice, investigating kind of flora. Mm. Um, and I thought, oh, this is all, you know, this is all sea flora. But as I delved deeper, I realised that I was actually looking at animals, simple, simple animals, yeah. simple, simple. I don't like to call them simple organisms because <laughs> it sounds derogatory, uh, but simple and economical and smart organisms. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of went on a deep dive into the kind of things that I was uncovering on the beach, on the shoreline. Yeah. Such an interesting shift and yet the constants were still yeah, there as well. Yeah. yeah. And I had looked at kind of – I'd used a lot of botanical illustration in my previous work mm. and I was really interested in the kind of – the ways that, that those illustrations were drawn were often incorrect and I really liked that aspect of it. I don't like the kind of uh, purest – you know, almost completely reproduced drawings of, of forms. I like the wonky bits, the wrong bits. I just find that much more interesting and also, you know, it's much more about the human mark and it doesn't yeah. have to always be perfect. And you can't copy nature because it, it just can't be done. No. Yeah. <laughs> this is making a lot of sense and I feel like we do just have to dive straight into the seaweeding yep. project and exhibition yep. because, yeah, that sort of beach combing and yep. specimens. I'll just let you... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, it was a it was a it was a long um, what's the word um, process project. I wasn't thinking saga. Oh, no, I yeah, but it was a saga. It was all of those German. It was a long period. It was a long project. Anyway, yeah. simply put, um, it was it's it started a long time ago when I first met Tony Candelos who I had met at a print symposium at the National Gallery and we kind of started this friendship and talked about wanting to do something together within the Museum of Economic Botany, of which he was then the director, person in charge. I don't know what his official title was at that point. So it had a long nurturing period. That's what I was trying to say before. Uh, So it was a long lead-in time and we eventually got a date and um, 
part of that project was to look at algae collections within the herbarium, mm. and specifically about a woman collector who's from Port Elliot called Jessie Hussey. And I had already undertaken some research about around her and her, her collections. And uh, she had she lived here from the 1860s to about the 1890s, mm. died quite young, and she became deaf when she was teenage years, I think. I could be wrong there. Um, and her, there, were, there were ads in the local papers, uh, not that there were that many local papers in Port Elliot, I mean, there was probably one, Agricultural <laughs> Journal, yeah. uh, looking for women collectors because Ferdinand von Mueller were, had, had spent some time in Adelaide. He was a German kind of botanist scientist mm. and he went to Melbourne and set up the Melbourne Botanic Gardens and he was looking for women collectors. Yeah. So Jessie Hussey's father put her onto this, but I think she'd already been collecting terrestrial and aquatic plants here for some short period of time before yeah. this ad was out. So she became a collector. So I was interested in her uh, because her I was on some weird um, like community group with her great great nephew. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I thought there was this and he was a really kind of straight guy who really didn't like me at all because I was a bit too strange for that committee yeah. but we developed this really interesting relationship around Jesse Hussey and she's yeah. he's since died but he still she still has living relatives wow, here yeah. so I was really intrigued that there was this woman combing the foreshore and that's kind of what I was doing yeah. in a slightly different way so I had already looked at her collections at the Melbourne Herbarium and I had um, gone to London and was spent some time at the Natural History Museum looking at her terrestrial and algae plant that collections. Cool. So that's why I really wanted to get into the herbarium here yeah. to look at the to look at her specimens. So that was the be, that was kind of the beginning part of that project. And of course, it got interrupted by the thing. <laughs> and, the big thing. Um, the, there were issues at the herbarium with um, COVID and also with the kind of the mechanisms around the collection. So I didn't actually get to look at any of her specimens which I was very sad about. But I had plenty of plenty of examples and of her collections that I'd viewed before, yeah. so I continued on with it. But also part of that seaweeding project was I wanted – I had already been looking at um, spongia oh, yes. at the South Australian Museum. So uh, those things that I talked about a while ago, a minute ago, <laughs> uh, about, you know, I thought they were all sea aquatic yeah, they were plants. They were actually – Invertebrates. Yeah. So I became really interested in invertebrates, particularly sponges or porifora. So I had organised to go and do some visits at the museum to look at their collection there. So I was wanting to amalgamate those two institutions' collections and try and blend it. Yeah, there's and a terrible sponge pun in there somewhere. Yeah, there's a terrible sponge. <laughs> there's many sponge punches. Sponge sponges. Sponge pun. <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was trying to marry those two collections together okay. because in the ocean they exist. They have many symbiotic relationships where algae and spongia grow on each other and have a really nice time. Mm. And also, I wanted to, you know, try and. Because science looks at single species mm. and I was interested in trying to break that down and combine this kind of this merging of the species. As it turns out, as I said, didn't quite get to the herbarium, but I did get to do quite a bit of research at the um, invertebrates with um, Anthea Crowther, who's 
head of that department who was fantastic in facilitating that and got to see incredible spongier. And so the outcome was in the Museum of Economic Botany where that's, is that where some of those specimens live or is that? The muse- no, the Museum of Economic Botany, we can't blur has a lot of fantastic specimens in it and is a great, you know, has this really incredible collection. But the none of those, they weren't the, 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 the permanent collection stayed as such. Uh, okay. But even despite that I didn't get into the herbarium before the show opened, there had been uh, uh, changes within that department. So Tony left... He was replaced by someone else, and now Lyndall Lawton is the current um, leader person, leader person, director, whatever. I think she's got a, a bigger title yeah. because she's her job is like most jobs had to incorporate multiple roles. So towards the end of the the process, we were able to get access into the herbarium, and so uh, many specimens of that Jesse Hussey had collected were included in the exhibition, which I was extremely excited about because that was the whole point of it. You know, it's like art collections. So many collections have so much work stored in this special secret vault for obviously all the right reasons, but it's great when the public gets to see those specimens. Mm. So I think they had to change the specimens every three to four weeks just because of the... um, is that kind of exposure to the elements? That's kind? it. That's right. it. Yeah. So it was it was incredible to see them and those relatives, you know, of hers that live in Port Elliot and other places throughout South Australia, you know, were able to see those parts of the collection. So to me that was super exciting that they were on show for everyone. And then so the work was alongside it. That's the so work was alongside it. And so the whole process was so long and drawn out and so so <laughs> tricky because the leadership changes made everything kind of interesting as well because it is a National Trust building. So I had envisaged this kind of major intervention into the whole building space. Oh, okay. But it didn't quite pan out that way. So I was kind of floundering, I would say, <laughs> as to how the work was going to actually be shown because... Yeah. The space is quite, you know, the exhibition space is quite prescribed and quite mm. restrictive in a way. It you it doesn't have, um, you know, you, there's no, it can't hold a great deal of weight. So mm. I had envisaged a different exhibition to the one that <laughs> that everyone saw, and in a way, serendipitously, it turned out better than I possibly could have imagined. So in a way, it's a big lesson for me. Because, you, you know, like you think you need to plan things and, you know, most institutions want drawings and plans mm. and everything resolved, but it kind of evolved right up to the last minute. Wow. And yeah. I think it turned out perhaps better than I expected. Yeah. So the forms kind of invaded the gallery space and it was also because I work part-time in a bookstore and I read a lot of dystopia I read a lot of anything because I can get a lot of books to read uh, but I'm kind of interested in dystopian um, literature if I don't think it's called that anymore um, and particularly Ballard who wrote in the 60s I think it was I could be wrong I might have to check that um, about this there, there's like a, a major solar incident and London is underwater and he describes many things in that in that great novel, and and I was particularly taken with these descriptions of algae hanging from the porticos and algae hanging from the door and taking over these monumental buildings in London. Yeah. So that's kind of what I had in mind for the Museum of Economic right, Botany. Yeah, that sort of taking over. Yeah. And, yeah. 
But um, I think it worked well, and and I created these giant, I don't know, three meter paper mache forms. I um, had been snorkeling at a little reef near where I live, and only in the last couple of years had found this specimen called a sea tulip, and so they're kind of based on that, yeah. and they're like as again this simple, wonderful organism that's a that's a filter feeder and so I wanted to have these giant aquatic forms kind of overtaking and challenging that space and I wanted to cover I wanted because there's lots of busts of men scientists in that little faces yeah big faces up on top of big big um showcases and I wanted again to kind of push that and try and acknowledge the Jessie Hussies of the science world because they're the unrecognised female quasi, not quasi scientists. You know, they yeah. that that wasn't available to them to, mm. to to pursue like academic careers, but they were vitally important yeah. in acquiring scientific knowledge. So I wanted to kind of interrupt and challenge those busts, and mm. so I put these giant green glowing <laughs> aquatic forms next to them as kind of a homage to those. Female scientists, particularly yeah. Jessie Hussey, and many, many, many women throughout Australia collected for the big guy, the big gun scientists, and many of their specimens and information were shared throughout the science world, mm. you know, throughout the whole of Europe and mm. wherever. But perhaps not given the kudos. No, for of course yeah. not. Yeah. And, you know, like, I because even though I couldn't get into the herbarium, I could get into the library at the Botanic Gardens, and I'd spend a lot of time reading and researching there, and there are letters between the um, von Müller and collectors in Argar, collector in Denmark and collectors throughout, and they talk quite derogatory, you know, in a, in a oh. very negative fashion about those women collectors. Mm. And particularly because Jessie Hussey was deaf, I think they just presumed that she was whatever. Yeah. But, you know, at, towards the end of their um, exchanges with her specimens, they kind of acknowledged that she was this very she incredible woman yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad they came around <laughs> I'm, well I'm not sure how far <laughs> they came around they're still blokes <laughs> we better not forget that there was a, a moving image work in there as well. It wasn't just all paper mache. No, there was, uh, there was lots going on yeah. and collaborations and yeah. many moving parts, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were, I had, there were prints, there were um, etchings and digital prints, but because the process was so long, I had initially been given funding from ArtsSA to develop this project, but because, you know, it was probably over four years, there was this... Uh, specific grant category within ArtsSA, I think it was called the Recovery Fund. Mm. And I needed to, you know, make make more work and kind of, I was kind of challenged to think about other ways of presenting the work. And, and really, it, it was almost the grant that pushed me to collaborating with other people. Yeah. Mainly I work um, a lot, you know, on my own in this studio. Um, but because of that funding, I thought I, I kind of had done some one I'm saying some one <laughs> moving image piece before yeah. and I was really interested in that and I, I I knew a young man who lived nearby who was a who had studied filmmaking at Flinders and um, I just suddenly thought this was a great opportunity to to push myself and to expand that one 
minor moving image yeah. thing that I take. Oh, you know, obviously I take lots of underwater movies with my little underwater camera and that goes nowhere. <laughs> um, so it was great. I just decided that I would have this collaborative element where I would make this filmic piece and I wanted to use local people. Yeah. And also COVID, you know, like it had changed the way I thought. You know, that, you know this was post was I think it was slight, maybe not post Somewhere in the middle? <laughs> yeah. And so I uh, worked with this young man, Mickey Mason, to help me film a piece. I worked with Susie Benji, who just lives around the corner, who's a designer yeah. and uh, makes clothing and specifically swimwear, which oh, yeah. <laughs> the film was obviously going to be around the ocean. So that fitted in really well. And Anna Freeman had moved down to the south coast in the last couple of years and that I swim with her oh, as well as a couple of other people. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to have this group of aquatic beings mm. who could work on this project with me. And funnily enough, Mickey Mason, I had known since he was a young man, and uh, he, he used to be like a pool attendant and I would sometimes go to the pool in winter to swim laps and he would, at the end of his shift, swim underwater and do like four laps underwater and I'd go, wow, that Mickey Mason can really swim underwater. But actually that quality was so important because we filmed this uh, this moving image really in very deep water right. out at Horseshoe Bay yeah. and that lung capacity was absolutely essential to the movie. Amazing. So I was interested in kind of flipping the women collecting thing that if you were a collector, was there a time in the future when the things that you were collecting would become a part of you. Would these sea forms, these accretions, become, potentially become part of a human? So it was kind of trying to explore that idea. And so it was kind of, I say it was a durational piece because, you know, everyone talks about durational pieces now, but we filmed it in winter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah, in really, like, deep water, and it was just kind of crazy, but incredibly wonderful, and I don't even think... That would be two years ago now. I don't think the water has ever been as clear as when we filmed it. Of wow. course I'm going to say that. But it was completely <laughs> random and it was it was very cold, but it was amazing and there was a, a seal appeared and uh, this, this, the seal didn't make the cup, but it's in, it's in the rough. Yeah. Um, but it was um, this feat to be able to stay there in, that, in those freezing conditions for so long. Gosh, that's amazing. I feel like, yeah, couldn't do that twice. <laughs> it's really, it's really, no, you know what, it was heaps of fun too because um, we had a lot of laughs and because I I had the waterproof bag and let the water in the waterproof bag that the spare film was in. So it, it was very, it was a very interesting moment. Wait, so analogue? Yeah, yeah, it was a Super 8, underwater Super 8 oh movie, uh, movie camera. Yeah, it was really, that's, I, I didn't want that high definition thing no. it was the print it was the printmaker thing i wanted this weird layering yeah. and so the super 8 gave us the ability to make these kind of layers and that's and that's what to me i found re really interesting in that process of making the film film sounds too <laughs> grand a word in making the short moving image piece does that sound even more wanky <laughs> um was this layering so yeah. And because it was low definition, it kind of mm. looks like a screen print. It kind of looks like the yes. pixelation. So I was really interested in, in playing with that. Mm. And Mickey Mason was the one who did all the work and I just did the, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it was a really great collaboration. And the other person that collaborated was a 
another young man called Giuseppe Ferroni who doesn't live, that was kind of my criteria was you've got to live, you know, near here or be as, but the other criteria was that you had to be a water person and he had spent a lot of time at my house in the summertime getting bashed at... Um, by waves? By waves <laughs> at, I'm going to say bash at, I can't even remember the beach, it was just down there, what's it called? Good. Boomer. Boomer. Boomer Beach, getting getting bashed at Boomer, bashed at Boomer. So he um, took some sound recordings down here. Oh, cool. And um, incorporated them into the music track that accompanied the film. Yeah. Was it music-y soundscape? Yeah, soundscape. Yeah, soundscape, I would say. It's more like a soundscape. Yeah. so cool. Yeah. And then the other other important collaboration was a really – it it was a really interesting, highly stressful process (laughs) doing all this collaborating. Um, and the other person that I w- really wanted to have on board was Kath Keneally, oh, who's yes. a really great South Australian writer who is also a aquatic person who swims a lot um, at Henley Beach and also I think she has a place at Bruni Island. Mm. And I had always loved her stories about growing up at Henley Beach and her fictional books. Yeah. And so I asked her if she wanted to be involved and she was really excited because I think she'd hit a kind of hiatus with her writing. Mm. I could be... Slightly exaggerating there. Um, and she was really keen. And part of it was that we would all swim together. Mm. And it kind of – we'd send these emails and it never really kind of evolved. And I was going, oh, maybe she's not so crazy on the whole idea. And I'd send her a message and she'd say, yes, I'm going to come. And then she didn't appear. And then one day she kind of went, I'll be there at 9 o'clock. And she came and we had this really beautiful swim and talked about our love of the ocean and swimming and all of that kind of carry on. And um, then she said, oh, I had a stent two days ago. And I went, oh, my God. So it was this amazing experience of her having this kind of therapeutic freezing cold dip. <laughs> That'll do it. And, um, and then she wrote this really beautiful piece for the catalogue called The Green Room because I didn't want a catalogue that was kind of um, writing about me or the works. <laughs> I wanted this kind of beautiful piece of poetry, mm. which she – she wrote this incredible piece and she read it at the Museum of Economic Botany one day and it, and it was – when she read it, it was very emotive and very beautiful. Mm. And Great that it was so tied in with the – The know. whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the great thing is is that I think now this is evolving into a book. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it's really so, – so that funding really has nourished many people. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's a really great thing. And also then have to acknowledge that Rosina Possingham designed the oh yes that was um, lovely the said booklet said catalog yes uh, and and also the 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 catalog or whatever you call it the booklet uh, was really important to me and I thought it was a really in, intrinsic part and I had endeavoured to have a mentorship <laughs> with through COVID with a printmaker from Melbourne called Trent Walter who is responsible for making many incredible artist books mm. i think he did the sydney biennale not the last one the one before and mm. uh, with stuart gettys and produced this great book so i was really even though i only got to work with him on two occasions because of the unmentionable <laughs> that kind of idea of producing this really kind of yeah. beautiful booklet was quite intrinsic to the project yeah that reference was there yeah, yeah. Um, 
Have you had a favourite response or uh, reaction to your work? If you've been privy to them? Uh, There's a couple. When I was taking over this studio with the pieces for the Museum of Economic Botany, um, people would come in here and, and it was predominantly children. And I'm really, I really love that idea of creating that kind of sense of awe and wonder. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that I create that for adults, but with children it's so uh, magic. Yeah. Magic. Magic. <laughs> um, but, you know, kids would come in here and they'd go, whoa, what's going on in here? And we had this pe- these people we don't know really who just mm. came for some other reason mm. and came in here and the, these two these two young boys were just so mesmerised by what was in here that we then sat down and did like a little painting session. And same thing, with when the works went into the Museum of Economic Botany, mm. they were really concerned about their, you know, potential for damage. And I go, mm. they're paper mache, it's fine. They go, because the great thing about the Museum of Economic Botany is it has such a diverse uh, range of visitors. Mm. You know, because even when we're installing, people go there just to waste time. Yeah. Uh, which is not, it's not a it's not a derogatory comment about the botanic gardens, no. but people go there because there was this young guy who had missed a flight, so uh, just thought I'll go for a walk in the botanic gardens. Yeah. Like just random reasons that yeah. people just End up first there, yeah. kiss, root, whatever in the botanic gardens. You know, like many things, and so you have this random audience that don't engage with art, mm. and so the audience that goes in there is hugely diverse and lots of school kids and so school kids would just scream and carry on and get so excited and want to touch everything and the uh, the um museum attendants would were really concerned that things were going to get damaged and i'm going it doesn't matter let them do it because it's paper mache it can be repaired plus doesn't need to go anywhere afterwards at <laughs> as as at this minute. Yeah. And so and then when I when I would go in there I would see that things would had moved, were yeah. missing and we would just put them back. And it was yeah. so I'm really excited that that young people can have this kind of mm. crazy engagement mm. with things that they don't really, you know, that they just respond to on a very simplistic level, yeah. but it, it it inspires this kind of yeah. amazement and awe. Yeah. And the other good thing is is that Andrea Carouther, the uh, head of the invertebrates at the mm. at the museum, partner wanted to buy something for her for a birthday present, and I just I suggested this print, and it was a surprise, but serendipitously it was it it was based on a sponge that I'd forgotten that I'd photographed at the museum that was that was collected in an uh, Antarctic expedition. Oh. So that was this kind of sweet moment where I had accidentally given her something from her collection <laughs> and transposed, you know, layered other things on top of yeah. it. And, you know, she had this kind of really great surprise. Hopefully it was really great. Anyway. Oh. And, you know, and it was an interesting way of paying back her um, her great support mm. in me looking at those, at those collections held in the um, South Australian Museum. Yeah. little birdie told me you're not resting you're just going gung-ho into more things is that right (laughs) well yes 
Um, it's interesting because I'm a mature person and I have been the busiest that I've probably ever been um, and whether that's by fortune or just harder working, both, obviously. Yeah. Momentum, um, even. Momentum, <laughs> yes. So um, so what's coming up? So what's coming up? Uh, well, you know, you, you, t- you talked about just where I live, influence where I work. I feel it's really important to contribute into the local community. So I've got a exhibition curated by a young man from Victor Harbour who's got a show, who's put together a show at Goodbank Gallery in McLaren Oh, fantastic, yep. Called, I think it's called South Coast Surfing or South Coast Group. I don't even know what it's called, and that's in a couple of weeks. And that's, I think, about five of us maybe six mostly there. locally yeah all yep. just south coast yeah beautiful um victor harbour port elliot people which is fun and i really i really enjoy doing kind of shows like that because it uh, gives me a little bit more freedom to make mistakes and and be more playful yeah. i mean i really think that's an important part of my practice is being in the studio and kind of not being really directed just Mm. having the ability to play so having those kind of exhibitions allows you to play but makes you play harder because you have to have an outcome and you're not just (laughs) going to screw it up and throw it in the bin um and then also at um coral street art center uh there's a show being curated there called water people and your favorite word my favorite word (laughs) It's becoming my favourite word. Uh, well, it's on the zeitgeist right now, isn't it? I mean, everyone's talking about immersion um, and the benefits of, you know, sea therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Valerie Taylor is in this exhibition. So when I got told Valerie Taylor was in it, what could I have to say? Yes, because she's like a water person icon um, and she does these kind of weird illustrations of nymphs, like underwater nymphs and stuff. Oh, so. Cool. I, I want to be in it because I want to be yeah, supporting yeah. the community, but I want to be in it because I want to see <laughs> Valerie Taylor. I just hope she appears. They're going to be running one of her movies at the Victor Harvest Cinema. Oh, that's cool. And um, so I'm exhibiting with Valerie Taylor. <laughs> uh, and then in 2024, a project I'm working on with uh, Flinders Art Museum is um, in combination with the humanities department mm. there, and dovetailing in with some history conference and it's around seagrasses and that's in 2024. So that's more than enough for me to contend with. Dare say. Yeah. yeah. Still enough uh, excuses to get into the water. No, no, that is it. integral. <laughs> most yeah. days, most days there is a there is a, there is a swim. There's a dip, yeah. Yeah, there's a dip. And are you a more of a float or a... Oh, no, swim. Oh, it's swim. earnest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have swum with uh, two friends for a very long time and, as I mentioned, Anna Freeman has joined us in the last yeah. two years and she's younger than the rest of us, so she keeps us on our toes. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an earnest swim. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it varies depending on the conditions, mm. but it's a, it's a very deep dive and ah. it's, yeah, it's good, it's good swimming. There it is. Yeah. I don't think we can top that. Um, and we can follow along on your Instagram, That's can't we? It. That's yep. it. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Yeah, that pleasure. was, yep, deep dive is the word. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Brilliant.